Hi, this is Joe Shannon. I'm a lawyer, a husband, a father of six kids, and I also uh, host a podcast called Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. Please consider listening to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, and any other folks that host podcasts. Just Google Joe Shannon and podcast and you'll find it. I hope you enjoyed the show. We're very lucky uh, today to be joined by Tony Mankus, uh, a lawyer, uh, a husband, a uh, father, a grandfather, uh, and just a, a great guy with a great story. How are you doing today, Tony? Good, uh, thank you. How are you? I, you know what? Every day is a blessing. I know we're living through this COVID-19 right now, and um, you know, I, you always look for the bright side of things. And so the bright side is, is that I have eight people around my table, on the dinner table. Uh, the, you know, this halt in life has, has been a little bit different for everybody. And I really feel bad for the folks that are, you know, small businesses and, and all the folks laid off and, uh, you know, just our economy. It's, it's absolutely devastating. Um, but, you know, just waking up every day and trying to make it. How are you hanging in there? Yeah, thank God. Uh, our family, our friends, uh, our clients, uh, I have not had any uh, bad stories. So uh, we're staying, keeping our social distances, but uh, we stop in at the office. Uh, we don't see clients person to person, but uh, we stop in the office and we do many things remotely, of course. Uh, uh, I learned, uh, I guess, when things bad happen, uh, we learn uh, some good things happen. So I'm learning all this remote stuff like Zoom and things like that. So uh, everything is good. So uh, Good, good. So, so I, I want to give a proper introduction to you. Um, so Tony is one of the uh, preeminent uh, tax lawyers uh, in, in Chicago area, but I think in the country too. Uh, really uh, a fella that knows the tax code back and forth. Um, you probably have a few of the copies of the tax code laying around your house uh, for, for uh, reading every now and then, but uh, really a great story on that end. Uh, and he's got a great law firm in Lyle, uh, Illinois, but also the story that I find fascinating about Tony is that he has lived the American dream um, by his you know, World War II experience get, getting out of, uh, you know, uh, the Soviet bloc and getting out, getting over here. And so I'm glad we're able to tell this story. And this is going to be a, a really fun interview for me because I'm, I'm a history uh, person. And I, I love the story of how folks that, that came here have made a huge difference uh, and just touched the lives of all of us. So so Tony, why don't we talk first about your upbringing? Um, wh where are you from? I was born and our family is uh, from Lithuania, a tiny little country in uh, Europe. And uh, you being a history buff, uh, you would appreciate knowing that uh, the history of Europe as well as other parts of the world, but in my case, uh, Europe, uh, it's it, it been wars and controversies and changes of uh, 
uh, borders and things like that. But uh, I was born in a tiny little boony town of a boony little country, Lithuania. And by uh, I was born in 1939, right about, I guess some people blame me that I started World War II, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's Lithuania and I was born there in 1939, uh, just uh, six months before the uh, aggressive, uh, uh, the war was declared September 1st, 1939. So tell me about your town. Was it, was it a small town, big town? Yeah, it's a small town. It's a, it's a village, uh, a little bigger than a village. Uh, my parents were, uh, you know, not really educated. They were uh, raised uh, during the time that Lithuania was occupied by Russia. Uh, Russia occupied Lithuania starting 1795. And uh, whatever, uh, you know, wealth was there or development, uh, the czar that ruled at that time made sure that uh, he took advantage of uh, whatever uh, resources were there. So my dad and mom were born in this uh, small village in Lithuania and they had uh, very little opportunities for education or development. So ultimately my dad worked on railroad and my mom uh, was a mother more than anything else, although she worked as well. So. It's a tiny little town in a small country that uh, historically, you know, that uh, uh, larger countries uh, step over and occupy smaller countries. And that was the fate of Lithuania among other countries in Europe. So when you were born in 1939, Russia occupied Lithuania. So what year did, did Russia get out? Yeah, it was the, the, the infamous Molotov-Ribbentrop Treaty that was signed, uh, I believe, in 1940. And Lithuania and, and Hitler and Stalin divided uh, Europe. It was a, called a Treaty of Non-Aggression between them. But uh, the real uh, purpose was to divide uh, the Stalin being the aggressor and Hitler being aggressors. They divided Europe amongst themselves. And uh, Lithuania became part of the uh, uh, influence uh, and occupation by Russia starting in 1940. So and then when did, when, did, when did that occupation end? It ended, uh, well, uh, it ended, uh, actually it didn't end uh, until uh, 1990 when Lithuania regained its independence after perestroika and after the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, that's in our uh, lifetime and yours as well. Uh, so it was almost 50 years before uh, Lithuania and other U Eastern European countries were uh, disoccupied uh, by, uh, by Russia. So. so in 1939, you're born. Um, and how, how did your folks end up getting out of Lithuania or getting you out? Tell us that story. Yeah, it, uh, <clears throat> Russia occupied Lithuania in 1940. And of course, the first thing that the Russians did is anybody that was political or educated, uh, they sent them to Siberia. So at least 30 to 60,000 men, women, and children uh, were shipped to Siberia as a way of preventing any sort of, uh, 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 you know, uh, pushback from those in Lithuania. So uh, uh, 
my dad uh, was not uh, educated or political and, and he was uh, worked on a railroad. So that's a strategic resource uh, for any military uh, such as the Russians. So as long as he kept his uh, nose clean and uh, he continued, uh, so we were not shipped to Siberia. Uh, so we continued to live in our small town in Lithuania and uh, we managed to survive. And then of course, historically, you know that 1941, after the Treaty of Non-Aggression with Stalin was signed, uh, Hitler invaded Russia. So then the Germans uh, with Blitzkrieg uh, occupied Lithuania among other countries and pushed the Russians back toward uh, into Siberia toward uh, uh, Stalingrad as it was known then and the famous battle uh, that lasted many years and decimated the Russian uh, the German military but uh, we stayed in Lithuania during the German occupation of course, uh, we were not Jewish, but the, the, the tragedy of the German, uh, the Nazi occupation is that they killed the Jews, uh, not only in Lithuania, but uh, other parts of Europe. And they had those uh, infamous uh, uh, camps where they uh, gassed and murdered people. So we again survived during the German occupation uh, because uh, you know, we were not Jewish and my dad worked on a railroad. But then when uh, the Nazis uh, were defeated uh, in Stalingrad uh, by the uh, Russian uh, armies with the help of American uh, supplies, uh, uh, then the uh, Germans, uh, there were uh, three German armies were defeated in Stalingrad. Either they froze to death or were defeated, and they started retreating back toward Germany. And of course, on D-Day in 1944, the Western Allies invaded uh, France and started fighting their way toward uh, Germany. And Stalin's army started fighting their way west toward Germany. And so we, uh, uh, Eisenhower and Truman, agreed as a, a Russian, uh, Russians were allies uh, of uh, Americans and the Western allies. So uh, Truman and Eisenhower agreed that uh, Russia should uh, occupy uh, Germany and Berlin even before we got there, uh, the Western allies got there. So as we heard the Russian allies, uh, Russian army coming to Lithuania, and this was in 1940, for around October, my dad says, look, we survived two occupations, so let's get out of here. Uh, you know, our luck, uh, we pressed our luck, uh, God uh, kept us alive until now. So my dad, having worked on a railroad, we just got on a railroad car, a cattle railroad car that, uh, that was uh, with the train that was heading toward Germany with whatever remaining uh, German troops were left, Nazi German troops were left. And we uh, went in from the frying pan into the fire. We left Lithuania and uh, the battles that were going on there and uh, went into Germany and settled in Southern Bavaria uh, in Germany, a town called Kempton Algoi during the war. So, so you're, so who was with you then? Your, your mom and your, your dad and then you and the, who else? 
Yeah, mom, dad, me, and then I had two older brothers and a six-month-old younger brother. And then uh, our great aunt who took care of us kids while, you know, my parents uh, worked or whatever, she came with us. And then How old were you when you got on that train? I was five years old. Do you remember it? Yes, I do. Yeah, and I recounted uh, with quite a bit of detail uh, those traumatic experiences in the memoir that uh, I wrote. Uh, so yes, I was five years old. Let me let me stop right there. So so you wrote a book about your about your life, didn't you, Tony? Yeah, it was. It's a memoir. I call it my uh, therapy. I guess uh, it was a way of recollecting those traumatic experiences. Uh, during the war and uh, after the war. So yes, uh, I recount in detail those experiences uh, in that memoir, correct. And what's it called? It's called Where Do I Belong? Uh, it was published uh, and it's available on Amazon.com. Uh, so I published it with uh, professional help uh, and it's uh, print on demand available through Amazon.com. That's great. Well, I, that's, that's a good read. So, so then you're, you're on a train as a five-year-old, you get your family with you, you're going to Nazi Germany and your folks, boy, what a, what a leap of faith to get on that train, huh? Yeah. You know, things like that, uh, during the war, you don't know what's going on. You know, the, the term nowadays is the fogs of war and what happens, nobody knows, but uh, borders were closed. Uh, Switzerland was still independent in theory, but uh, they're not letting any people in. So my dad said, uh, you know, we want to get away from the immediate danger of the Russians uh, army. Uh, and we, we knew from past experience, Russian army was, uh, wasn't exactly warm and fuzzy. So we <laughs> got on the train uh, with uh, our immediate family. And then my mother's sister and their one daughter, their, her, uh, my mother's uh, husband uh, probably was, you know, we know, didn't know where he was. He died uh, probably in Siberia. And uh, so she joined us as well as a neighbor from Lithuania. So we got on a train and headed into uh, Germany with the retreating German soldiers. And then you, you ended up uh, being in Southern Germany for a while? Right. Uh, we weathered the war. So when we got away from the Russians, uh, we, the only place we could uh, live with some semblance of shelter was on uh, railroad cars on, off the main spur, a spur off the main track. And of course, uh, living in the railroad cars in Germany during the war, you can well imagine Then we got... Uh, the other side, uh, we were bombed by the Allies in in uh, southern Germany, so there was a bunker there we could hide, uh, uh, or uh, when the weather turned nicer in the spring, uh, we would go uh, to the forest uh, foraging for food and things like that. So uh, we survived uh, on the in the railroad cars in southern Germany off the main spur off the main track on a spur uh, in, in Kempton, Allgoy. How, lo how long were you in Germany for, Tony? So we were there, the, the, we, we uh, got there like in November of 1944. And as you recollect, uh, the war ended around May or June, uh, the, at least the war in the 
in Europe, the Pacific went on until June or July, until July, I believe, and, or August, until the bombs were dropped in, in Hiroshima. But uh, so the, the war lasted until 19, uh, June of 1945, and we remained there in the, in the, rail, in the railroad cars. And then right after the, and we, uh, by grace of God, we ended up in the American sector of Germany, as you recollect, Germany was divided be between the four allies, Russia, France, uh, US, and Britain. And we ended up by luck in the southern, in the portion of Germany that was occupied by the American troops. So uh, once the American troops uh, and the Germany surrendered and the American troops were there, they had thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of refugees so they started the, in our section and the other sections of Germany, uh, displaced person camps, DP camps, and we left the railroad car and uh, settled into uh, whatever modest accommodations were there in those displaced person camps. Uh, most How long were you at the, one of those camps? Until we were able to immigrate legally to America in 1950. So for almost five years, Yep, you were you were at the in a camp. Uh, I believe it was uh, five and a half years, right? Uh, so, so let me ask you this question. So, when you left uh, Lithuania, um, what language did you speak? Uh, Lithuanian. <laughs> so, did, did you did you any of your family speak English at the time? Uh, no, my father uh, spoke uh, six or seven languages, at least enough to get by. He spoke Russian, Polish, Latvian, German. So he learned whatever he could uh, to, uh, you know, survive during those crazy war years. Uh, but uh, we did not speak English. Uh, my oldest brother started picking up a little English, uh, American English, when the uh, American troops uh, occupied that part of Germany, so he started learning. He was 12 years old at the time. So you're so from age five to ten. Um, tell tell me that that camp that you were in was there a school? Was there anything? I mean, how how did you how did you all day to day handle things? Yeah, well, uh, the Americans. I mean. Uh, there's a sub-story, I mean, we organized there uh, mostly among nations. Uh, so they were Polish, they were Latvians, they were Lithuanians, they were uh, 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 Hungarians and all sorts of refugees that escaped uh, the, or those that he could escaped the Russian occupations. Roosevelt thought that Stalin had noblesse oblige was the term he used, of course. Yeah, uh, I get it. Died, but in any case, uh, so the, the camps were organized first by the uh, Americans or other allies, and then UN, uh, UNRRA uh, came in to uh, organize the camps. But we self-organized somewhat with the help of the Americans who provided food and shelter. So we self-organized and there were quite a few Lithuanians, uh, at least the part that I you know, was involved in, that were fairly well educated because the educated people that left uh, along with us their, their own way, 
they knew they were on a list to be deported to Siberia. So there were quite a few educated uh, teachers, uh, mm -hmm. uh, entrepreneurs, uh, and people like that, government officials. So they helped to organize us, uh, organize schools for the children and organize. Uh, my father, for example, drove a truck. Uh, you know, he was able to earn some money. So we organized a semblance of organization in those camps. And our camp was similar to the other camps in some respects that we were able to self-organize with the help of first the Americans and then the UN personnel that uh, managed those uh, camps. So, for example, were, were, were you able as a child to go to, go to mass on Sundays and, and go, to, go to school during the week and all those things? All those things. Uh, there were priests uh, that had mass, uh, held masses and organized uh, religious uh, activities. There were schools, uh, so they were among the refugees. They were actually teachers, uh, among others. So they were uh, the organization into schools and uh, into uh, religious activities. And the social activities were probably, they, they, they formed, for example, singing groups. They formed acting groups. Uh, so there was some social activities in addition to uh, sub rosa activities. Uh, the, the currency uh, uh, in those camps was uh, American cigarettes. If you had American cigarettes, you could trade for just about anything. And of course, the German economy was in shambles. Right. And the Germans were struggling as well. So you could trade uh, for cigarettes. You could get food sometimes if there was any available. So uh, it was a semblance of organization uh, in, uh, uh, you know, during those uh, war, uh, post-war years. So how, how did your folks, number one, know that they wanted to go to the U.S. and, and you know, I, I know it's a long, longer story in the book. You, everybody should get the book. I mean, the book is, it tells the story and, you know, um, we're lucky that, that you're telling this story and I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that we're, we're sitting it because, you know, one of the things that, that I want people to understand when they, they, they uh, hear folks like you is, is that this, what we're going through right now is more of a speed bump for you compared to Nazi occupation, Russian occupation, finding out that your dad is gonna be shipped to Siberia, you'll never see him again, you know, those types of things. And, and so the appreciation that, that folks like you have for this country and the freedoms, et cetera, that, that we have, I mean, it's just so refreshing to hear your viewpoint on things. So how did your, your folks have the pluck to figure out, hey, I want to go to U.S. and I want my kids to go to U.S. and get out of there. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I, you know, the bottom line is this. There were hundreds of thousands, millions of young men tragically died in those wars. So after the war, after the World War, many of the countries, including America, and including the Marshall Plan, which helped Europe to reconstruct itself economically. So they were looking for bodies, able bodies, because so many able bodies were dead. So uh, America, Australia, Argentina, Europe said, uh, 
our economies are starting to recover little by little. If there are any, there's millions of refugees. Uh, initially, uh, Truman and uh, Eisenhower and Stalin said, well, you got all these millions of refugees in Europe, send them back to their countries, the war is over. And Lithuanians and many of the Europeans said, no way, Jose, we don't have our country. Russian, you know, regardless of, you know, what the original intent was, the original intent was to have free elections and things. Yeah, Russians, you can imagine, had free elections. But in any case, so they, the, these countries that were, uh, Western countries especially, were starting to develop economically, were looking for able-bodied men, so, and uh, family. So my dad was in the prime of his life, 45, so, uh, one of our family members went to Australia, uh, uh, you know, as a, uh, because he was able-bodied young person that they were looking for. So my dad said, maybe we should go to Australia. Well, we kids said, Dad, we watched all those beautiful movies in the camp that was occupied, that was run by the Americans. They had Betty Grable, they had Ronald Reagan, and the good guys always won. The Americans won. We loved the soldiers. We want to go to America. So my dad, who's not exactly democratic, I guess somehow we convinced him that uh, we want to go to America. So uh, Truman in 1948, uh, Truman in Congress passed the Immigration Act that allowed uh, 200,000 uh, immigrants to come to the US. Uh, we, we wanted to go then, but uh, my, one of my brothers, my second uh, oldest brother had uh, issues with lungs uh, and we couldn't make it. But in 1950, that uh, Immigration Act was amended and Congress uh, passed uh, authorization for another 200,000 immigrants. So we made it uh, through that. So we came to the US under that Immigration Act. We landed in New York Harbor, October 24th night. Uh, excuse me. I get a little choked up about it. 1950, October 24th, 1950. So that's the. Uh, so where, where did your where did your uh, ship go from? It went from uh, Bremen, uh, Bremen, uh, Germany to uh, New York Harbor. Uh, so we landed there. It was a ten day trip. Uh, we hit some uh, rough weather. It was a troop transport. Uh, the General S. S. Sturgis that. Uh, uh, transported us uh, to uh, uh, US and we landed in New York Harbor uh, early morning October 24th uh, 1950. So tell me about that seeing America and seeing the Statue of Liberty and all that. Yeah well uh, the uh, we came into New York Harbor uh, very early in the morning and the word went out it was a cloudy morning uh, about six in the morning uh, and uh, that uh, we're, we're now coming into New York Harbor. So I, uh, I was like six lever, uh, layers down sleeping in the troop uh, hammocks that were there. So I rushed up into the deck and I saw the Statue of Liberty there, which we saw a thousand times in the American, all the American movies would end in the camp with the, uh, American flag uh, waving and then the uh, Statue of Liberty in the background. So I recognized it. And uh, so uh, 
we and we didn't have to go to we thought we would go through the uh ellis island but the ellis island had shut down it was occupied at that time by the u.s coast guard it, uh, a year or two before or some months before so we just went through the uh uh customs uh in new york harbor to the regular customs but uh we ended up we didn't have to go through endless island, but we had a the friend that left Lithuania with us, uh, a friend of my dad's, uh, his name was uh, Raudis. He was also from that same village. Well, he had gotten there a year before, and he came to pick us up at uh, when, after we went through the customs in New York Harbor. He was waiting for us there and uh, to take us into Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is where my uh, mother's sister was. And she sort of, she'd gotten there six months before and she was our quote sponsor, which was needed under this immigration act. And we didn't have to go to work for two years in a farm somewhere with a sponsor somehow I don't know if it was uh, fully legal or I guess we met the technical requirements of having a sponsor with my mother's sister who had gotten there six months earlier. But in any case, Rowdies, who was a friend of my dad in that small village, he'd gotten a year before and he came and shocked my dad. He drove with a Buick, a 1950 <laughs> Buick and my dad- How many people do you fit in that Buick? He says, oh my God, America is unbelievable. He's been there one year and he came to pick us up, all eight of us with this Buick. And uh, my dad couldn't believe how, he, he was so impressed that his friend from the village that left and got there a year earlier was driving a Buick. So I thought that was a cute story. Yeah, so, so all 80 fit in the Buick? Right, that was, well, fortunately, we didn't have too much luggage or anything else. No money, no uh, luggage to speak of other than the clothes on our backs. Wow. Well, whatever was there, I guess, fit into the trunk and the eight of us, uh, plus the driver. So we managed to squeeze into that Buick that he had, I guess. And he, it was like a, an hour or two hour trip back to uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is not that far, but... Uh, so we managed to squeeze in and uh, into that Buick. Uh, I guess wow. four of us were kids, so we were not that big. As a side note, you know, this, this, these immigration stories, I just love them. I, I just, you know, it's uh, it really is moving. But as a side note, tell us about what, what, what line of work your wife's in. My, my wife? Yeah. Oh, Margarita. Okay. Yes. Well, she's a... Uh, uh, she's an attorney also, uh, and uh, when we met, uh, I was working for the government in Puerto Rico, but uh, when we met, uh, uh, she said, where are you from? I said, U.S., uh, but uh, I said, I was born Lithuania, and she goes, Lithuania? Where's that? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she's, she's uh, from Puerto Rico, uh, and uh, in fact, when we dated when I was there, uh, she was very private. She kept it private. She didn't tell any of her relatives that we were dating. But in any case, uh, when I, I left Puerto Rico without, uh, you know, not marrying her, but I came to Chicago, I transferred. 
I was working for the IRS then, uh, and they had an office in Puerto Rico, but I transferred out of Puerto Rico after several years to Chicago, and I started uh, studying law at night and working for the government during the day. But in any case, after a couple of years, I realized I could make it working both full-time for the government and studying uh, at night uh, in, uh, at the John Marshall Law School. So uh, that's when I proposed to her. I called her, I, I at least called her over the phone. I said, can you come over visit me in, uh, in uh, Chicago? I said, uh, I don't have much time because I'm working full time and going to law school, but I do have a little two week break of law school uh, during Christmas. Can you come and visit uh, me in uh, Chicago for Christmas? So she goes, well, yeah, I'll do that. And I bought her tickets to come to Chicago. And of course she was born and raised in the tropics. And I said, well, uh, Chicago, she's going to get an introduction to Chicago weather in December, but a, a fluke happened that in that year, this was in 1982 or 83, had a fluke warm spell in December. Uh, our little con, my condo was in Evanston, and uh, it was 60 degrees, and people were jogging along the lake shore there. And Margarita gets there and she goes, well, Chicago, it can't be all bad. It's 60 degrees in, in December. And That's uh, I great. talked to her and uh, we got married uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, next year. And uh, when she came back uh, and uh, we, we married uh, and that winter was uh, one night was still the record, was the coldest night. Uh, that's the record in Chicago. It was 26 below zero. Uh, actual temperature and like 84 wind chill factor. And Margarita says, why didn't I sign the uh, prenuptial agreement uh, with the temperature clause? But uh, I like it. I like it. So, so with, with her, so what's her law practice? Uh, she, she does general practice, but her focus uh, is uh, uh, social security disability. Uh, she has a few other cases, including real estate, but uh, uh, her f main focus uh, is uh, uh, social security disability. She helps people that are unable to work to get social security benefits. That's great. And then how long has she been a lawyer? She's a lawyer before I became a lawyer. She graduated from uh, law school in Puerto Rico in 1968. Uh, but uh, after she, after we married, she came to uh, uh, Chicago. Uh, she was a stay-at-home mother for at least uh, six, uh, eight years, uh, taking care of the children. But when she became pregnant with the last one, she says, that's it, I'm climbing the walls uh, with just uh, <laughs> uh, child uh, babble all day. So she took the uh, Puerto Rico and uh, Illinois have a, uh, uh, a uh, agreement that uh, if you pass the bar exam, uh, you don't have to, you know, uh, they accept a law degree from Puerto Rico. So she studied for, took the bar preparation course as she was like seven or eight months pregnant with the last one. So she was studying eating the crackers uh, and uh, to keep the, uh, I guess the nausea 
keep it under control and she passed the bar exam so she became a lawyer after the uh, last one was born that's great so i want to get, go back then you're you're um you're in elizabeth new jersey um with your whole family you 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 arrive there your parents have no money obviously you don't either how did you and you didn't speak english right right well i learned english uh I was, uh, my first job was an entrepreneurial job of shining shoes. I was 12 years old. So I built a shoe shine box. My mom staked me for the brushes and the shoe polish. And I went to the bars uh, asking uh, for, you know, if any of the uh, clients uh, wanted sh uh, shine. So I learned a few words like uh, shoe shine and 10 cents. Uh, and uh, thank you, things like that. So I learned English starting in, uh, of course, I went started school there as well, uh, grammar school. Tell uh, me what that's like. Tell, tell me what that was like going to grammar school. Is this in New Jersey? Yeah, Elizabeth, New Jersey. I guess one reason we chose that or my <clears throat> aunt and my, my dad's friend chose Elizabeth, New Jersey was because there had already been a community of Lithuanians going what's what they call the first wave of Lithuanians came to America. Many of those young men that came to the U.S. back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they wanted to escape uh, having to serve in the Tsarist Russian army. Uh, the Tsarist Russian army that uh, uh, got young men to, uh, if you were able-bodied, you were uh, drafted into the Tsarist army and you were supposed to stay there for 25 years. That was in the US, the army, the, the, if you were drafted, it was a two years. In Russia, it was a Tsarist Russia, 25 years. So many of them were able to get out and came to the US. And some of them started in uh, Shenandoah, Pennsylvania, the coal mines. But uh, the later ones were able to settle, like for example, in places like Elizabeth, New Jersey, where Singer sewing machine had a huge uh, manufacturing plant. So they started settling in Elizabeth, New Jersey, late 1800s, early 1900s. And they developed Lithuanian churches, Lithuanian uh, uh, facilities, uh, taverns including, but uh, a, a place where the, they could meet and hold meetings. So Elizabeth was fairly well established by what's called the first wave of immigration. Uh, so, so how long, so how long were you in Elizabeth? So I went to school there with they had, it was a, a school with St. Peter and Paul's church and they had nuns teaching. Uh, nuns they could speak Lithuanian, but of course, uh, uh, so many of the other kids did not speak Lithuanian. So after the nun introduced me for a day or two with the Lithuanian translations, after that she goes, well, sit next to this other DP kid that speaks some English. And uh, so you learn there. But so we were there. So I went through the grammar school up through sixth grade. And then seventh grade, I started junior high in the public school in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And, and at the, by that time, were you speaking English? Well, you you know, you pick up a few things, and I guess I was starting to learn more and more. But uh, watching, you know, TV was just starting to become yeah. big in the 1950s. So you learn things by going to school, by hanging out with kids, uh, by uh, 
watching TV. You know, Arthur Gottfried, uh, before your time, but he was uh, big on TV and among other things. So you pick up, uh, and as a kid, uh, you know, you pick up uh, language pretty easily. Relative. So you, did, did you go to, to junior high and high school in, in, in New Jersey? Right. It was Thomas Jefferson High School. And the cute little story you might enjoy is uh, I wasn't exactly a sterling student because I had so many issues, uh, I don't know, immigration, emotional issues, whatever, with the war. But uh, I generally managed to surpass all courses except Mrs. Murphy, God rest her soul, in my junior year in high school, she, uh, she pl flunked my English. The only course I flunked in high school was the English, junior English. So I had to retake it in the senior year. And eventually when I got to my act together and started college, I decided in honor of Miss Murphy that in college, I would major in English, which I did, so. Nice, and where'd you end up going to college? Uh, I, I was going to night school at Rutgers University in Newark. Uh, I started at Rutgers at uh, New Brunswick, but I didn't do too well there. Uh, I dropped out. Uh, I, was start, I was working, uh, going to night school at Rutgers in Newark. But eventually, when uh, I got tired of, uh, you know, doing these uh, uh, rough jobs during the day, I said, I got to get a degree. So I eventually... Uh, decided to go full-time to Fairleigh Dickinson University in, in uh, New Jersey. Okay, so then uh, you graduated with a major in English and then what year was that? Yeah, that was 1968 and uh, of course I had no money and my dad says why don't you come join us to work in the General Motors and I said well I love Kennedy, he was assassinated and uh, the Vietnam War was still going on, but uh, I had a bad ear, so I couldn't, uh, I was rejected uh, in the military. I was drafted, but uh, I had a 4F with the bad ear. So I wanted to join, and I joined the Peace Corps, and I went to uh, Ecuador for two years as a Peace Corps volunteer. After no, I didn't know that. So you, you, were, you were in Ecuador, huh? And then you pick up a little Spanish, I yeah, the, yeah, they they taught us Spanish. I mean, I minored in Spanish and uh, majored in English and minored in Spanish in college because I was already thinking of joining the Peace Corps. And uh, so when we got to Bozeman, Montana, uh, when I was uh, uh, when I was uh, accepted to the Peace Corps, they gave us a ten-week training uh, in Bozeman, Montana, including. Uh, uh, language, uh, intensive language courses uh, by native speakers. So after 10 weeks of intensive language training in Bozeman, Montana by native speakers, uh, I was pretty fluent, uh, at least uh, conversationally pretty fluent in Spanish. So you, you got out of the Peace Corps, what did you do then? I was looking for a job. I got out in 1970 and uh, I wanted to go like, uh, uh, U.S. Uh, AID or Foreign Service or something, but they weren't hiring. But uh, when I applied to the government, uh, I guess my application somehow ended up at the offices of IRS who were looking for uh, uh, people to work. So I had long hair. I was uh, sort of a I was sort of a protester. Sorry, I got rid of that. That's all right. No worries.
so I was a, I wasn't a protester, but I had longer hair. And so I went for the interview with the IRS. I didn't want to work for the IRS because I didn't like numbers or taxes, but I guess the guy liked me, uh, the, the guy that interviewed me. When he asked me, he says, uh, how would you justify taking money from people after being uh, giving yourself and in, uh, into Peace Corps? And I said, I don't have to justify anything. I said, <laughs> and I guess he liked my spunk, so he hired me. So <laughs> where, where were you living at that point? I was still living at home, uh, and I was hired by the IRS to work in 1970 in the Newark office. So they gave us one year of training, and then I became a full-fledged revenue officer with the IRS. So you're a G-man. You're, yeah. you're G-man in 71, and how long did you, were you the G-man? Well, I was there in Newark, uh, and then for one year, then they transferred me to uh, Jersey City, Jersey City, as I call it, for a couple of years. And then I applied. They were looking for uh, people at the Office of International Operations in Washington, D.C. So I, after several years with the IRS in Newark and Jersey City, I applied for that job, and I was accepted uh, the IRS Office of International Operations uh, in, in 1974, I went there and I traveled all over the world working for the IRS, uh, the international operations. How long did you do that for? I was there in ninth, until 1977. And then I applied for another job in Puerto Rico was another promotion. And, uh, so I applied for a job in Puerto Rico and I went for the, to work for the IRS in Puerto Rico. And I was there from, 1977 until 1980, about two and a half years. And that's where you met Margarita, huh? That's where I, that's the, <laughs> that's where I met Margarita and I guess my life's changed there, yeah. That's awesome. So then from, uh, then when you, when you left there, you, is that where you end up in Chicago? And Yeah, I was there until 1980 and then I wanted to get out of Puerto Rico, uh, uh, and I got a transfer to Chicago. I knew some person that was a manager at IRS in Chicago. I met him when he was there in Puerto Rico, so I knew him. And uh, the, uh, his manager said, you know, why don't you take a look at Tony, see if you can bring him to Chicago. So I came for the interview in Chicago, and I, I did want to go back to the States and uh, maybe start law school because I was thinking about that uh, all through all those years. And I learned a lot of legal things when I was working for the IRS and I liked that legal part of uh, IRS. Sure. So I was transferred to Chicago for, to work for the IRS there in early 1980 and I applied uh, to uh, uh, law school. Uh, John Marshall accepted me in 1980 and I started I forget if it was uh, January or June, but I started law school, night law school in uh, uh, 1980. So when you when you came to Chicago, were you, were you working at the federal building then, downtown? Yeah, I was working in the federal building downtown, yeah, 290, uh, 230 South Dearborn Street. Right, yeah. right, and uh, still there today, right? Yeah, one reason I liked John Marshall, uh, besides the fact that they accepted me, was right, right across right the store. Yeah, that's it. So I would, leave, I would leave the IRS office at uh, five, go across the street to John Marshall, go to the library there, 
If I had any energy, I would start reading. If not, I would take a little quick nap before the classes started at six. Well, so it's been so think about that, Tony. It's been 40 years since you came to Chicago, huh? Yep. And uh, so, um, you know, one of the things, you know, we we interacted a little bit because, um, you know, I'm part of uh, St. Joan of Arc Parish in Lyle and um, and your family um, is right by there and, and had an education experience there. But there's also a, a pretty established Lithuania community in Chicago. Um, how did you start when you got here? Did you, did you connect with that Lithuanian community when you first got here? Yes, uh, I connected with all the Lithuanian communities wherever I lived in Jersey or here. But I was, I mean, my dream uh, and my approach was I want to be American. I, I, want, I love America. I, I know the, I mean, when I think about it, I never would have had those opportunities if we had remained in Lithuania besides probably not surviving there after the communist occupation. But so I always wanted to be American. I wanted to do things. Uh, I knew the opportunities uh, were the greatest as educated American uh, because I had very, I, I connected with the Lithuanians. I would go to some of their meetings or events or things like that, but I wasn't, hanging out nonstop right. with Lithuanians. I was reaching out to the larger American community. And uh, so, but you know, I, a big part of me, uh, the early years for sure is a Lithuanian and I still speak Lithuanian, but I was starting to lose some of the Lithuanian connections as I traveled around the world and other places. So I was focusing on the uh, developing myself in the career-wise uh, in the larger American community, but I maintained uh, ties with the Lithuanian community uh, on and off. So uh, that's sort of how you're, uh, you know, you phrase your question. Sure. So, so what year did you get out of law school then? Were you still working for the IRS when you graduated from law school? Right, right. I graduated from law school in 19... Uh, 85. I took the bar. I passed it in 1986. And uh, that's when I, I first worked for another lawyer for a few months, uh, five or six months. And then I went out on my own uh, for sure, like in 1987. So 87, Tony Mankus is his own guy, his own law firm. He's got all this IRS experience. He's a lawyer. You start practicing what type of law? Well, I figured it was a no-brainer uh, working for the IRS for 15 years. I know there were a lot of people that uh, had relationships uh, with the IRS. So I hung out my shingle. I started writing articles. I got involved with the Bar Association. I would make presentations about IRS tax issues. So my practice really from 87 on, the biggest focus, I did do general practice to a certain extent when I started out, but more and more I started focusing on IRS tax controversies, and that includes uh, audits or collection issues or criminal issues or any related issues. So that's been my focus. Uh, although I did do bankruptcies as well, which is sort of related. Uh, I mean, IRS tax issues deal with uh, 
economics and money and finances and bankruptcy, which I studied at law school as well, uh, is related. So I did do uh, tax the most, bankruptcy somewhat, and in the earlier part, I, I did a few other things like divorces, DUIs, and things like that. But more and more now, it's almost exclusively IRS tax controversies. Yeah, and um, tell, tell us about a little bit about your practice. Uh, what, what, what is the, like, for example, if, if folks, um, what type of people can you help? I mean, that, you know, with all of your, your background of experience with working with the IRS and your 30 plus years of practice, what, what are the people that, that, or companies that you can help the most? Yeah, a lot of my practice involves, and a lot of referrals come from other lawyers, especially when individuals or businesses owe money. So you try to work out things with the IRS uh, through an installment agreement or an offer and compromise. But I get involved in audits as well. I get involved in criminal investigations. I get involved, for example, uh, recently I uh, had a case of another the lawyer who had uh, tax uh, preparation practice and uh, the, the U.S. Justice Department and the uh, Office of Professional Regulations, they were going after this lawyer. So I negotiated uh, settlements with the Department of Justice or I had criminal cases where the uh, U.S. attorney in Chicago uh, went after person, for example, in one case, they went after a person uh, for uh, what's called structuring. Uh, he was depositing money, cashes into the uh, bank, his bank account, uh, without uh, filing the required 8,300 uh, reports. He was too busy. And then they seized 127,000 of his assets, of his bank account, and uh, they were going to prosecute him. Well, they did not prosecute him, but they wanted to keep the money and we could have gotten the money back by filing a suit. Uh, but my client, uh, I negotiated with the U.S. attorney. He didn't want to give it back, but we could have gotten it back through a suit in the uh, U.S. federal court, but the client uh, did not want to uh, follow through with the suit because he was afraid of the bad publicity and he would lose many of his uh, three generational big clients. So we ended up uh, withdrawing from that case. But uh, so it involves things like that. Many uh, tax uh, collection cases, some audit cases, some criminal cases, some cases representing other uh, practitioners, uh, when they get in trouble with the OPR or the uh, U.S. Justice Department. So it sounds like to me that that you serve as a buffer uh, and stand between the, the the government and your clients, and are able to use your experience and your training and and your education to help them uh, seek some sort of agreement that that they could get so that would be palpable to both sides and, and work it out so that uh, they can get on with their business. And if they've you know, made a mistake, that it's not gonna be something that's gonna be an execution, but it's gonna be something that's gonna be uh, able to work out. Is that sum it up? Exactly, that sums it up very well. Although the only thing I would add to that, yes, I helped to 
represent people with tax issues. But the only thing I would add to that, I do maintain a professional relationship, good professional relationships with the people at IRS, especially in the last uh, 10, 15 years since their last reorganization, they reach out to, to uh, what's called stakeholders, uh, you know, CPAs, tax attorneys, because they realize they cannot do everything themselves. So while I represent and defend people with the IRS, I maintain relationship because IRS has the same approach, especially the last 15 years. They want to work things out. Now, in those cases where are, you know, really bad stuff like criminal cases, uh, they want to, you know, drug dealers, money launderers, they want to put them in jail and they should go to jail. And those people, uh, you know, it's difficult to help other than defend and do the best you can. But in many of the civil cases, you work things out and IRS is open to working things out rather than, you know, suing them or, or, or pursuing enforced collection uh, or enforced, uh, uh, you know, audits and things like that, non-cooperative audits. So very often we can work things out and we do work things out in many cases very favorably to the clients. Uh, so that's great. Hey, so Tony, where, where, how can people get a hold of you? What's, uh, what's the, what's the way to get a hold of you? Well, the easiest is uh, you just Google my name, uh, Tony Mancus, or the law firm has a website, uh, Mancus and Marchand Limited. It's at uh, irs uh, irstax.com. Uh, so either way, the phone number is 630-960-0500. But the easiest is Google. Google is incredible. You'll find me in the 50 or 100 different pages there. So I'm easy to find. And when, when people call you, um, it, what type of financial obligation is it for, for them to, to sit, just sit down and talk with you? There is no financial obligation. Generally, I, ch I charge a very modest uh, consultation fee. Not so much that it's a money maker, but I want to keep away any kind of calls that are just phishing calls that are trying to fig figure out who's cheaper or who's uh, or has a. And Tilly has a question about uh, thirty dollars that uh, somehow IRS send her a letter or the state. So I try to minimize those type of, uh, by charging a very modest fee. But the idea is not uh, to charge the fee so much as to uh, leave out phishing calls or non-serious uh, calls. So uh, there's really no, no and other than the modest uh, consultation fee, there's no commitment. And I do set an hour aside to listen detail to their issues, especially if they bring questions, uh, detailed uh, documents from the IRS that I can uh, zo zoom through uh, and understand uh, the problems uh, quite readily after 40 years of in and out of the IRS. Sure. And, um, you know, as we close this interview, um, the one thing I wanted to ask you was what, whether or not you could put in perspective um, this whole COVID-19 situation that we're in. Um, just from your perspective, I mean, you, you've led a, an unbelievable life living on a, on a train car, living in Nazi Germany, 
living in free Germany, living in occupied Lithuania by both Russia and Germany, and then coming over here as a, a young kid and learning how to speak English, all these types of things. Put this in perspective, what, what we're going through now, I, um, I know this is a huge, a huge problem. It's like a bomb to our economy. I, it's, it's amazing what, what's happened, but give me your perspective on what's going on. Yeah, Joe, well, thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I mean, my perspective is, look, I'm not religious and I'm not Mother Teresa, but you know what? I thank God every day for surviving all those things. I thank God because I believe, whether you're an atheist or whatever, that there is a, uh, a power, whatever you want to call it, God, I call it God, I was raised Catholic and that's what I am. But uh, So I thank God, first of all, for the health, first of all, for blessing us to survive, uh, blessing us for the wonderful family that he's given us. And uh, you know what, COVID, it's another test uh, of living, and uh, you definitely want to listen. You know, I, I love science. I mean, I'm a spiritual person to a certain extent, but science, physics, astronomy, mathematics, they're beautiful, beautiful, wonderful tools. And science and medical uh, uh, experts say, look, uh, this is a serious thing. You got to keep your social distance. And uh, I follow those instructions. Uh, I pray, but I follow those instructions. And, uh, you know, the, the, the people that uh, have control and authority over the country, uh, they're going to make, uh, over the state, they're going to make decisions and give recommendations. And we follow those. So uh, I keep my distance. I stop seeing clients in person. But, uh, you know, we have Zoom and other resources, internet, telephones, uh, we can communicate. So uh, stay grateful, uh, pray every day, whatever your religion is, whatever, and uh, thank God. And, you know, I'm sure you realized, uh, you know, you raised a family, you're a father, uh, and, and you have a beautiful family, and uh, you're thankful and grateful every day, and don't take things for granted. Uh, and so, as, as much as I can sum them up, uh, I, I'm not as eloquent maybe as I speak. Uh, when I write, I'm a little more careful about my eloquence. But if I can sum up those things, uh, I'm grateful. Uh, thank you for doing the interview here. And God bless you and your family as well. well thank you so much, Tony. And then um, just one more, one more time for people that want to read your great book. Uh, can you please let us know what the, the, uh, the title again and where they can get it? Yeah, the memoir is called uh, Where Do I Belong? Uh, it can be uh, gotten through Amazon.com. Uh, I have a website, uh, TonyMankus.com. Uh, there's a little video there. I also wrote another book, just so I'm not uh, totally a, a, a wuss there. I wrote a little t page turner uh, uh, book, uh, a legal political thriller called uh, Chicago Tango for those who want a little more entertainment. Uh, but uh, so all those uh, books can be gotten through uh, both books through amazon.com. And, and, and I, I want to get a commitment from you, Tony, that if we want to talk to you in the future, 
that she'll set aside a few minutes to talk to us because one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever done. I, you know, I, I have an 11 year old son. I can't imagine it. What you went through as a, as a kid like that. Yeah. It's well, amazing. God bless you and your family as well. It'll be a pleasure. Uh, if you if you want to speak again uh, with me, uh, I would enjoy that. So uh, enjoy, enjoy. Your day, uh, Joe. Uh, enjoy the life that you have. Uh, thank God for what you have, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again, and or just running into you. Uh, uh, and thank you for reaching out to the community that that you do in addition to your uh, law practice, Joe. That's a wonderful thing to do. Great. Thanks, Tony. And we'll catch you. We'll catch you at the jewel or somewhere, huh? You bet. <laughs> All right. See you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the opening statement with Joe Shannon. You can find us on the internet at shannonlawgroup.com or telephone our office at 312 578 9501. Have a terrific day.